Hi, my name is Alan. I am the producer of the Courage to Lead interview series. I grew up in Australia, but my ancestors were first fleeters. I've learnt that this land is and always will be land cared for by the oldest Indigenous culture in the world, and that that land is and always will be Aboriginal land. Their culture is all about storytelling. So today I acknowledge the Darak people where this podcast is recorded and we extend our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I truly hope you enjoy today's story, which is someone's individual journey on how they traverse the challenges and the joys of becoming a leader. Welcome to the next guest on the Courage to Lead interview series, a lady called Cheryl McCarthy. Cheryl's remarkable contributions to the emergency services in New South Wales have earned her nominations as a Surf Lifesaver of the Year for both the state of New South Wales and Australia. It's an honour to share with you the insights and experiences from our conversation, which I believe will inspire and enlighten many of you. Cheryl's journey is a rich tapestry of experiences from owning a small business to working in marketing, communications and fundraising. Her 17 years in Canada, including time spent with the Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra and the University of Calgary, have equipped her with some invaluable skills. These experiences have taught her to navigate different organisational environments and to value the contributions of each team member. All right, welcome to the next guest on the Courage to Lead interview series, someone who was recommended to me um, as part of the She Inspires Me coffee book, um, identifying the most inspiring women in New South Wales Emergency Services for 2024. And the lady that I have with me today is Cheryl McCarthy from Surf Life Saving New South Wales. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. And I think, I know you're going to be pretty modest about it, so I'll just, um, it blew me away just who, you know, what your nominations are. You were nominated by Jamie Corville, the president of um, Bulleye Surf Lifesaving Club, and he told me that you're the Surf Lifesaver of the Year for New South Wales. In addition to that, you're also Surf Lifesaver of the Year for Australia. So congratulations to you. Yeah, Thank that's, that's you. A, that's Thanks a very huge, much. huge honour. <laughs> so, it really is. <laughs> yes. So... Uh, let's get into it. Um, every guest on the show gets asked the same two questions to start with. And the first question is, what was your first ever true experience of leadership? And it can be yesterday or it can be back as early as a five-year-old or anywhere in between. I think I was really fortunate uh, growing up to have some really great people around me and uh, some exceptional examples. And uh, I played a lot of sports when I was growing up as well. So I think you're exposed to different uh, leaderships, leadership traits there as well. Uh, I think, funnily enough, I might tip it on its head a bit. And um, where I learned the best leadership skills in many ways was from a particularly poor leader and uh, I learned exactly what I didn't like about this leadership and uh, and the traits that I would see and say you know what I 
absolutely commit that I will never do that. I will okay. never treat people like that. I won't approach a situation like that. And I think sometimes the the lessons that sink in the best are the hard lessons, the things you don't like. And so I think that experience was great for me because it showed me what I didn't want to be as a leader. So then when I saw leadership traits and qualities that I liked, they really resonated with me because they weren't necessarily the norm. So they really did stand out to me. So I think those uh, leadership traits you see that you don't like are often what you learn the most from. It's interesting what you just said there, and we might uh, often. I, I love where where guests answer this question because it, it just often goes in different directions. And your answer there was very similar to one, you know, one of the best leaders I've ever ever worked with. Then you said um, the leadership traits that I liked are not the norm. So you're kind of saying that they're not that common. Um, what do you do? You want to go a little bit further into that, and do you want to? say what what isn't the norm yeah and and I don't think that they're they're not the norm it's just I was fortunate when I was 21 to have a very very poor leader and so I learned young uh and and so I, I guess I hadn't if I'd only ever seen positive leadership traits I might just expect that to be normal and not have them stand out so much for me they wouldn't resonate so much for me so I guess what I was trying to say is that the um being exposed to the poor leadership skills really made those good ones when I saw them stand out for me and say that's that's what I want to be like that's um that's the type of leader that I want to be do you want to just um share what those traits are because you obviously have a picture in your mind about what they are I do, yeah. I I love a collaborative approach to leadership, and I think it's fascinating in the um, you know emergency services world that I think that you can't be just one type of leader. There are times when the rubber hits the road, and you definitely just have to make a quick decision and move forward. And you know, it's not necessarily a democracy anymore for, you yeah. know, want of a better term. It's, yeah. guys, here's what we need to do. Let's get at it now. And then there's other times where you can be a lot more collaborative as a leader. And yeah. I think that every person on a team brings a skill set to a team and they can be vastly different skill sets and levels of experience and I think your job as the leader is to figure out what those skill sets are and then to work to bring those out so that as a team you um, you bring your collective best to whatever situation you're facing so that could be you know tasks around the office or that could be you know operational during an emergency but yeah. uh, getting to know, spending that little bit of time to know, to learn about your team members and, and what makes them tick is, I think, really important. And knowing that you sometimes need to change your style to embrace them and bring them along. You can't expect everyone to change their way of being to fit you. To be an effective leader, I think you need to be willing to uh, to understand and adapt as well. Well, I think we could stop the interview now. You've um, 
you've just nailed it really that's what and that's what i love about interviewing people like you uh you didn't make that up you it's it just rolled off your tongue and and you lived that and that's why you've been nominated to me as a person you know who should be honored in in you know with australia uh, new south wales most emer- you know inspiring women in emergency services and, and your awards kind of articulate that so um that's a really good uh, example because you know a lot of i think you said it's not every leader does that they they don't they don't bring out the best in their team they don't identify the different skills but people who i interview on this show talk about that every day so, so it's um it's quite it's quite beautiful so thank you for that really it's a really good way to start the interview the second question that everyone gets asked is um what is something about cheryl mccarthy that no one knows <laughs> well i'm going to thank my friend jamie coldwell here for <laughs> uh, for inspiring me to be um to be really honest with you about this one because he did say he was a paramedic who was terrified of needles yes, yes. and uh my foil is elevators okay and they completely psych me out so if you're wow. ever right uh, if you're ever in an elevator next to me and it seems like i'm ignoring you i'm not i am merely surviving and uh, going through my you know strategies to try and keep myself together <laughs> isn't that incredible like um yeah. you just like we you just mentioned jamie corville who's been a guest on this show who does some of he's does some amazing stuff but he's petrified of seeing blood <laughs> And an ex, oh, he's a surf lifesaver himself and an ex-paramedic. And here you are, um, this person, like, like surf lifesaver of the, new, of the year for New South Wales and Australia, and you um, you lose it in an elevator, which, is, an a, elevator. Every, which is a part of everyday <laughs> life. So that's, that's hilarious. That's really, really good. Good stuff. All right. Well, that's a really good start. Let's, um, this interview is all about you now. So... There's, there's, so if you want to share with us, you know, what's your current job title, job description? Yes, so I am currently the Emergency Management Coordinator for the Southern Zone for Surf Life Saving New South Wales. And it's a, yeah, it's a very new role. And the, in fact, the emergency management team at Surf Life Saving New South Wales is is very new, less than six months old. Okay. Yeah. So uh, it's a really exciting opportunity. And this week, in fact, was the first time that we've had all five members of our team together. Everyone has now been hired. So we've got a, a team and we, uh, you know, met all together for the first time so uh, it now feels like we're you know ready to just really um hit the ground running with the team okay i mean that's um that's a very important role and it's and it's it is brand new and it's uh, an emergency management is such a you know like in today's world in 2024 with all the different climate um extremes that we're seeing it's it's a given that we have to be ready for it um and uh, and hats off to surf life saving new south wales under under steve pierce's leadership um you guys um and uh, that's probably the wrong thing to say your your organization has um has taken off at another level you know just the the different uh like you know i think you're australia's biggest f air fleet or something you know with your drones and everything is something some you know this is just what you get up to 
is ridiculous, really. The people wouldn't understand. So, and the fact that you're branching out into e emergency management as well um, makes sense because of because of what what coverage you get. So, let's. Um, I'm in your hands now. So that that's where you are now. So that's that shows tells the audience your level of expertise now. Um, and this year, you're you have those two amazing awards at a state and national level. So how do we how do we uh, end up with Cheryl McCarthy in 2024? Where does this story start? Uh, and you take us where you want to take us. Well, it's been an uh, an interesting journey for me, and you could uh, you could say I feel for all the kids who uh, you know who are 15, 16, and people say, "What are you going to do? What do you want to do with your life?" And it certainly took me. Uh, quite a while, number of years to find my happy place. And uh, it was, you know, around five, six years ago that the um, emergency response and emergency management uh, became a real passion for me. And wow. uh, I, I knew that that's where I wanted to be in my career. So uh, I had... Uh, you know, gained a raft of experience over the probably previous almost 30 years and uh, some of that as a, a small business owner and some working for uh, working for others and, you know, a different, uh, different careers. I'd had some marketing, communications, fundraising. So... And I spent a number of years, almost 17 years in Canada as well. So had some, um, you know, different experiences over there. But uh, I guess these last five years I've really found where I want to be. And it's exciting because no matter what I was doing before, I think I was building the skills and the knowledge in many ways. It might not have been emergency management focused but uh the skills that you bring to a team etc you can learn those effectively in any environment really so i think those experiences over the last uh, 30 years have uh, they serve me well now and i can pull lots of learnings uh, out of those, but uh, I really find that now I go to work every day. I'm inspired. I love that you never know what you're going to get on any given day. Um, mm. That is something that I find uh, exciting um, and engaging in a workplace. So, uh, so I think I found a really nice fit. Yeah, good. What um, there's a few little rabbit holes we could go down there. Um, What's what's the Canadian story? Seventeen years in Canada. How do we end up there? And and what I find really interesting is um is it sounds like you really only hit your niche niche six years ago, which is yeah. a good, that's a good story as well. So <laughs> I'm I'm probably every parent's worst nightmare in that I took a year after I finished university and said, I'm going to go and teach uh, skiing and snowboarding in Canada. I'll see you in a year. And life evolved and it was uh, 17 years before I came back. So really? I uh, I got married over there and uh, started working there, started a business there. So uh, it was 
yeah, Canada was my home. It was funny. I had actually spent, you know, my, done most of my adulting, so to speak, was was in Canada, um, having moved there when I was 20. So it was very much where uh, I expected to be. And uh, long term, and I, I have dual citizenship now, so very wow. proud Australian and yeah. uh, very proud Canadian as well. And uh, I think my husband... Bruce, when he retired from the fire department, he didn't want to shovel snow for the rest of time. And so we started talking about uh, moving to Australia. So uh, we we did that in 2010, 2011. So great, great decision for us. Let's just explore that a little bit because there's obviously a story there. So um, yeah, as you say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... Every parent's worst nightmare. I'm just going for a gap year, and then you come back 17 years later. But you got married. So where did you live? Um, uh, and what's the story? You know, what what are your probably takeaways from Canada? What you know, what what are the highlights of, of over there? So I lived in the Calgary Banff area. Worked in the Banff ski hills, Sunshine mm-hmm. uh, Sunshine Village, mostly, and. When I, after about a year and a half, I got it what I call a real job, which was uh, not a chairlift. I uh, moved into the city, into Calgary, and that was, it was a journey. I had travelled a lot. I was really fortunate when I was growing up that uh, my parents and my sister, I have a younger sister, and the four of us uh, did a lot of travel, so that was um, it was just an adventure, I guess, that I wanted to uh, to go on, and just didn't quite expect it to to last so long. But yeah. uh, you know what, I loved it over there. Uh, obviously, very different from Australia in in many ways. Uh, the climate is obviously a, a lot colder, and um, but it's very similar to Australia in many ways as well. So. I think that Canada is more similar to Australia than it is to the US. And uh, so I I felt quite at home there. And obviously I was the one who talked a bit funny over there, but but I really, I felt uh, very much at home there. Okay. What um, Calgary is that? Because Canada has a mix of English and French. So is Calgary part of the French part of Canada? No, it's not. Calgary is in Alberta. So Mm -hmm. we are uh, cowboy country out there. We're in in Western Canada and uh, the home of the Calgary Stampede, which is the, you know, famous rodeo and uh, and show every year, every July, which is uh, which is great. So uh, so it was very much the English uh, English speaking part of Canada. Okay. And you said your husband, um, Bruce, I think it was, is he sounded like he was in the fire department over there and t- he until was. he retired. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, career firefighter. Yeah, lovely. Okay. Mm. Um, and what what um, what other jobs did you have over there? Like you went to Calgary, but you didn't say what your job was. And, and what's what's what skills did Canada give you to bring back to, to Australia? So my my first job there in the city was in marketing with the Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra, yeah, okay. which was uh, which was fabulous. I am 
in absolutely no way a musician. I can't read music. I, I love listening, but um, I have no musical skills whatsoever. But uh, I really loved the experience there because it was so, it, it was a brand new world for me. Yeah. It was something that I was really unfamiliar with. So uh, that was great. I met uh, a lot of, uh, lot of really fascinating people in that job and from you know artists would come in from all different parts of the world and everyone had a, uh, a really different uh, story um different different needs different traits so it was uh, it was a really good learning experience for me actually in terms of learning how to work with others and to identify you know some of uh, some of those people were uh, let's say had much higher needs, more high maintenance <laughs> than others. Yeah. Uh, some of those, you know, guest artists who would travel in. So, you know, learning to understand that and respect that, and how to work with that, uh, gave some definite troubleshooting skills and uh, skills in in trying to, I guess, head off issues before they became problems. I, I definitely learned the value of the scene where something looks like it might be going a little pear-shaped and let's uh, get on that and address that now before it becomes something that's more unmanageable. So wanna, I think... Do you want to that... give a... I mean, that's a skill that good leaders have um, and, and the, the name of this show is The Courage to Lead. Sometimes... Um, so not so good leaders will see it, but don't want anything to do with it because it's going to be it's going to be rubbish to handle. Um, yeah, but do you want to give an example where where your kind of sixth sense had a had an inkling that something was going to be a problem, and you actually addressed it? And it, do you want to? Can you remember something from that time? Yeah, I can. And, and when I spoke about at the outset the leadership qualities that I very much didn't like. They were actually at that job at the Calgary Philharmonic. Okay. It was a it was a leader there and um someone who had a very much a, a divide and conquer um a, you know kind of style yeah. with staff and, and pitting people against each other. So you know there were times there where I, I learned to see it coming and learned what types of situations might might prompt that and how to get out a bit ahead of it uh, I guess and uh, so that was that was really valuable for me and that and to get ahead of it it essentially came down to communication yeah. you just need to be willing to go and and talk to people and have an honest conversation and uh, you know let them know where where you are and what your needs or expectations are and to actually listen as well hear what their needs and expectations are because you can uh in most cases you can find a happy place somewhere in the middle but you can't do that if you never let them know what you need and if you never listen to what it is that they need well you're um I think we're going to stop the interview again there. That's that's a gem. That's an absolute gem um, because that is uh, one of the best interviews I've done on this show. Her kind of gems were listen, uh, respect the other person's position, uh, and find find a common ground. So that's that's so it's so simple. But not many people have the as you said. It's 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 not something you see all the time, and it, and 
a lot of people are too scared to have the conversation. Um, so yeah, I think that's the, the big thing. So, wow, that's really good. That's really good. So, so you did the Philharmonic, uh, Philharmonic Orchestra as marketing, uh, which you'd never done. You, you had nothing to do with um, music. So what else did you do? What, what else did you bring back from Canada to Australia? So I moved from the Philharmonic over to the uh, health region, actually, and worked there in in marketing and events and fundraising, and uh, and from there followed a uh, followed a boss to the University of Calgary. So they were, um, you know, that exposure to the healthcare system and then to the education system. There, I think were. Um, it was quite fascinating to go from such a small organisation and then to go into these larger organisations with a lot more bureaucracy yeah, around yeah, yeah. them and and learning how to navigate through that. And, uh, you know, we all need to in every role figure out, you know, who's who in the zoo and mm. where you uh, where you go to to get things done. Um but those were were certainly very different environments to uh, where I have been in the past. So steep learning curves for me, which uh, which was great, made the job uh, made the job fun, you know, every day mm. the learning. But uh, I think you know those skills as well have helped knowing how to navigate different environments. And so you have the you know the private sector, the public sector. Um, smaller businesses, larger businesses, seeing the dynamics there in how teams develop as well is, um, you know, interesting. And you might have a lot of people around you uh, in a workplace, but I think one of the lessons that I took with me from that was that as a leader, it doesn't matter how many people are around you, but whatever your, you know, your, your core team is there, you can make them feel valued and not necessarily lost in the in the big scheme of things, I guess, with everything else going on around you. And it might be quite chaotic at times, but having that connection to your team members, those who work with you, you know, on that day-to-day basis is really important in terms of cutting out the noise, I guess. It's a good story. Do you, you said something in there around navigating, learning how to navigate the bureaucracy, making it fun and valuing the team immediately around you. So they're really there's three good takeaways from that answer. What um, can you give me an example of how you made that happen, or you know what? How did you navigate? How did you how did you learn to navigate the bureaucracies? And maybe you've just answered it, but I'll I'll let you contemplate that. Trial and error, to be honest. You know, in many in many cases, and I don't think any of us get it right the first time. And uh, I'm certainly someone who learns by doing, and that means that uh, you know I make my fair share of mistakes along the way. And uh, you know that's and that's fine. I, I think I'm a big believer in the 
learning by doing, but you have to be willing to self-reflect really honestly. And uh, I think to be able to succeed um, everything you learn and there's always positives that you can take out of any situation and I think that we should accept those and acknowledge those and own those but I think there's uh, you know every day I could think of things well I could have done that a bit differently doesn't mean it was bad or wrong but um, I probably could have done that differently and got a a better outcome or a faster outcome or one that worked for more people, um, for example. So I think that that honest self-reflection is really important and it's not about beating yourself up, but it's about let's just take those little learnings and uh, we'll figure out we might employ them tomorrow or the next day or five years down the track. Um, and you might not even realise you're doing it at the time, but I think if you don't go through that reflective thought process, there's a lot that goes on that you can uh, that you could miss. It's just a gem, another gem, because not there's very, I mean, good leaders do self-reflect and self-reflect probably every day after or every every miss. <laughs> um, uh, do you want to give an example? Can you remember one thing in particular? I, I loved how you said self-reflect, be honest. Um, do you want to, can you, can you identify something from your Canada times where that, that rings true? Yeah, I, um, you know, there's probably several examples in there and uh but you know one of them was adjusting to a new boss that uh that I had and I didn't do a particularly good job of adjusting there and uh you know that action might be where I, I really learned that um you know it's not for one person to adjust to another it's you you both have to have some some give and take there and uh, I had a certain way of doing things and a new um, a new boss had a different expectation and I feel we didn't communicate particularly well with each other. Um, and, and for me, for sure, I think that was uh, probably a function of age and lack of maturity as well. And, uh, you know, the, you get quite sure that you're doing things the right mm, way or, mm. or the best way and um, and when you're under time pressures as well there's a lot to be done and, and you've got pressures it's hard to force yourself to stand back and take the few seconds or minutes or even hours whatever it needs for you to really think it through and and reflect on it and I didn't um I, I certainly didn't and you know, I ended up making a decision which um, to leave and it ended up being a really positive one because that's when I went and, and started my own um, business. I think the, the only good part, not the only good part, but the one good part about that is that even though I made that decision to leave, which, you know, may have been, um, when you look back on it, a bit of a... Um, a knee-jerk reaction and a lack of willingness to adapt. Um, 
on my part, it did manage to do it without burning bridges. And so was able to work with this team going forward, but, uh, you know, on a consulting basis, which kind yeah. of, I guess, gave me the freedom that I was obviously looking for at yeah. the time. Um, but but fortunate that I hadn't burned those um, burned those bridges. That's another. Um, you virtually you are echoing some uh, previous guests because it's 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 so within us sometimes to go. I don't, I'm right, you're wrong, and and we communicate that really loudly <laughs> and burn mm-hmm. bridges, uh, and and then can't recover from that. So that's a really good uh, point that you make that. Um, even though you did leave, you obviously left uh, in a professional, dignified way. Yeah, which, you know, w- was fortunate all around, you know, for a number of reasons. And uh, it's become, I, I know that I dealt with that <clears throat> particular situation in a more emotional way than I would today. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, a lot of water under the bridge and, and years as well uh, yeah. since then. So I would hope that, you know, we all we all grow um, wiser as we grow older. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. So we're, we're in your hands here. So you've, you're still in Canada. You've started your own consultancy business. You've done, you've, for want of a better term to summarise it, you're quite emotionally intelligent. In how you you handle life situations, um, you're always self-reflecting, and you're you're aware that your relationships are pretty pretty critical. So, what what's the next thing you bring from Canada? Is that is it, do you finish on um, your own business, or is there more to the story? Yeah, no, I do finish on my uh, on my own business there, and. Uh... That's actually, I it moved that in a sense, similar type of business over to Australia as well and uh, started up consulting here when I, uh, when I first moved. But it was in many ways, I, I love the consulting world. I love the variety. I love the, you know, the different relationships that you get to make and that you can work and you know, different, I guess, different areas, different people. You're not tied to the same office every day. Yeah. And 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 back then the world was very much about, you know, going to an office. And yeah. um so I really appreciated the flexibility of being able to consult. And uh, and I mentioned my husband was a firefighter, so he was, uh, you know, you do shift work there. So sometimes you would feel like, you know, ships passing in the night if your, um, you know, work days didn't line up. So that consulting as well gave some really nice flexibility on the home front as well. Okay. So what's your um, what was your consultancy business? You've been you've kind of hinted at it, but you haven't actually described what it was. Yeah. So did uh, worked with a range of clients there on uh, primarily strategic planning and uh, also events. Events were really fun for me. Uh, I enjoy the planning, but I uh, love that uh, you know event day, event yeah. week. What yeah. the um, the logistical chaos, the how, that is a real operational component oh, it to it. Yeah, and it as is, yeah. I'm sitting here thinking it, it through and talking to you, it's, 
probably ties nicely into that, um, you know, emergency management yes, because yeah. you have the, you know, the preparedness and you have to put the the time in there and do it well so that then when you do go um, to that operational environment, you're you're ready to go and you can, uh, you know, you can handle it. And that's, um, you know, sometimes organised, sometimes disorganised chaos is uh probably an environment that I've always thrived in and I found fascinating. So I'd say there was actually quite a strong tie there as I think oh, yeah. about it between the events and then the um I, t- I totally agree with it. Like my my history, you know, this interviews about you, but my history is is I'm a career cop in the last 15 years at commander level. And a lot of those last 15 years were in the events books in Sydney. Yeah. Uh, so and, and it is a buzz to work with like-minded people in the biggest events you can dream of and pull it off because you get because you get on yeah it's um yeah logistical chaos i like that description yeah well done well done um where did you where did you move back to when you came to Sydney? when you came back to australia moved back to canberra i grew up in canberra and my uh my parents my sister and her husband and kids still live in canberra so it was a, a familiar and uh, i guess safe place to go back and use as a launching pad we had uh, decided before we even left canada that we wanted to live at the beach mm-hmm. so uh canberra was our base originally and uh from there, we we took journeys. We searched every coastal town, city, hamlet, whatever it was between uh, Jervis Bay and the Victorian border, oh, yeah. and uh, drove across the bridge into Bermagui when August day, one of those perfect winter days that was yeah. cool, no wind. Um, it was beautiful. We just literally we fell in love with it right away and it has such a um such a beautiful community vibe about it and you know it's a working fishing village it's not just a weekender for tourists it it has a school it has the you know the main street with a lot of um businesses run by the you know the young um young families in town so it had a really um Fascinating energy about it, which we Good loved. Good on you. I like that fascinating energy. That's a, that's a really good description. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then, your it's your story. So you've you've got your consultancy business, and you've found your way to the beach. So we kind of identify that that's the first link like with the snowfields are a long way from being a lifesaver <laughs> so um yeah. yeah so so it is where does the the lifesaver story start and i think then this from what i know there's a a rural fire service story in there as well so yes so um in your we're in bermagui what what year are we in yeah, so we we bought our block of land in Bermagui in 2012 okay. and uh, spent the next three years going back and forth between Canberra and Bermagui while we were building. We were owner builders of our um, of our home, so that was a um, that was an experience in and of itself, which yeah. was um, really rewarding, very challenging, very mm. tiring, but um, but really rewarding. And uh, 
we would spend, you know, every weekend here. I was fortunate. I had a, a job in Canberra that I had uh, started just to get. To. It was a um, two-day-a-week job to build some networks and meet new people. Mm. And that's actually, that evolved. That was a, with a registered training organisation. And I uh, I started training with them and uh, became their training manager over time. So that uh, morphed me away from the consultancy and into a, uh, into a workplace again, which is not where I envisioned myself being, but um, had a, a really nice tight team there and uh made some really wonderful friends yeah. there at that uh business so i uh, love doing that so i got up to where i was working a um four day week so we would spend that uh, extra time get out of camera on the thursday afternoon and straight down to the the beach and the build and it was you know it gets a bit overwhelming at times when you're you're building in your yeah. spare time so we thought we needed a way to to get out meet people in Bermagui we wanted to volunteer um the town had been very welcoming to us so you want to get involved and and give something where you can and uh my husband's background was uh, in fire but in aquatics rescue with the fire okay. department over in yeah. Canada so we thought well you know different different water obviously not so much ice here but um yeah. it, you know we both had a love for the water and uh and the ocean so the surf club seemed like a natural place to be so we came down and volunteered to help with uh, the nippers program on Sunday mornings and that yeah. kind of busted us out of that house build for a couple of hours where we yeah. just got to relax and and enjoy the, you know, being in a beach town and not just tied to the build. It's a pretty, um, it's a lot, your story is not just a leadership story, it's a life story. Like some people would listen and um, identify with that owner builder nightmare or <laughs> challenge um, and how busy you are. So you make yourself busier by then <laughs> taking on the Nipper program. In, in between the build. But, um, I, I tend to do that, try to make myself busier. I don't know what that is. <laughs> but it was obviously a rewarding time. So I think you've mentioned in there you've got kids in that story. So, uh, No, I, I don't have kids. I have stepkids who okay. are in Canada now. They, they're grown. They're in Canada. But, uh, no, we volunteered with the nippers to um, – with other people's kids, which is actually, I joke about it all the time because I love them to death and I love being around kids, but it's um, it's wonderful too to be able to have fun with them and then send them home with someone else. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that. I can relate to that with our, our grandkids. I totally, totally know what you mean. Um, okay, so that's, so you're in the Life Search Life Saving Club there. So that's around 2000 and between. That's around 2014 we yeah, okay. joined the club. Yeah. Okay. So what happens then? So uh, it was, uh, it's a great little club we have here in Bermagui and they, the committee and the group running it had been through a build. Um, we built this am amazing new building 
and it had taken many years and a lot of energy and effort and I think the existing team where um, there was just a, a lot of fatigue setting in yeah. and I think we came just at uh, just at the right time and have in terms of having a, a fresh outlook but they, they were looking for some um, for some new energy and ideas and they had um, you know built this amazing space to uh, you know kind of to build from and so Bruce and I I decided yeah, this is a club we really want to be involved in and help out. So we took on uh, some committee roles and uh, kind of threw ourselves into that. And uh, from there at the club, and we've been heavily involved at the club level uh, ever since. And uh, that actually evolved into, you know, we became patrollers and then uh, with, Bruce's instant command background and with fire and uh, became what we call duty officers and I had done a lot of you know learning vicariously through through Bruce and the um, you know emergency response side and so I was keen to be involved in that as well so around 2017 um, we became duty officers, which are your essentially your forward commanders for yeah. emergency callouts. So anything, any operations outside the flags, and uh, that from there, I, I just I think that was really where I started to develop that passion for it. When I uh, when I look back and uh, was recruited to take on the director of lifesaving role for our branch which is the seven clubs from Batemans Bay down to Pambula and that's a it's a volunteer role uh, but it's managing your you know working with clubs to help enable them with their uh, their patrols between the flags you know, we were building our emergency response capability outside the flags so with support operations so with jet skis and drones and wow. uh, I found it really fascinating and uh, you know I was exposed there to sitting on the um, local emergency management yeah, committees yeah, and, and yeah. the regional uh, committee and uh, loved those. I, I think I've made some fantastic relationships there. I've got some some wonderful friends uh, through there across all agencies and uh, that's where that, I guess, that uh, love for that developed and I felt, you know what, I feel like I've got, you know, I'm in a happy place here and uh, this is tell. the, the career that I want to pursue. Would you say, um, and I, I, I'm asking a, an obvious question here, but the listeners mightn't see the link. Um, in your events career, um, you know, bringing, working with all the different stakeholders to bring an event home, whether it's a one-day or a one-week event, is there similarities in that world to what you just described, the emergency management committees at a local level and a regional level? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think in both instances, you're, you're working with a range of stakeholders and, and they all have different motivations for being there. They all have different needs. They have, um, although you're, you're typically working to one, you know, shared outcome in the 
the broadest sense right at the top, there's lots of um, needs and, and outcomes along the way that individual stakeholders need. So I think that that uh, back in the event management, yes, it does. It ties really nicely into again that preparedness space so how do we uh how do we do this well how do we collaborate how do we do this effectively because we can't all be working you know independently of each other we might have a different uniform but that same shared goal at the end is to you know have that successful outcome in our response to whatever the world throws at us uh, this week, whether it be fire, floods, COVID, and, you know, and understanding what our agency and individual skill sets are, I guess, what we can bring to that. What is it that we do? What is it that we don't do? And, uh, you know, understanding that and if you're going to do that successfully, if you're going to have a successful response phase, you have to have really done the hard yards in that preparedness phase and you can't do that successfully without building those networks and relationships and again going back to listening to to people and understanding what it is that they and their agencies need and everyone has different external pressures on their organizations as well that you have to uh, that you have to nav uh, navigate so communication is key again. Well, well, um, I can see why you're the leader of um, the newly emergency management um, group of the Surf Life Saving New South Wales uh, because you're across you're across your brief. You, you've lived it. You've lived it. Um, <laughs> and I and I'm not the leader of that team. I, I'm uh, the leader of the southern area, and we have uh, three others and um, counterparts of mine spread out across the state and metro. Hunter Central Coast and Northern Area, and our uh, leader of the emergency management team, um, Gary McKinnon, came to us from Resilience and, uh, and a long career in fire and rescue who has some amazing experience and insights, and uh, so I'm fortunate I learn from him every day. It sounds like a, a very diversified team with some incredible skills that yeah, you have to take your head off to Surf Life Saving New South Wales for identifying the need for it um, and being and, and building up their own capabilities. It's pretty, pretty special. So I know in your story, um, like we're, we're, we must be getting there, like uh, you said that you're, I forget what was the, you're the Director of Life Saving for, for Seven Life Saving Clubs from Bermagui down to Pambula, which is close to the uh, Victorian border, just short of... Um, uh, Eden. Um, yeah. And, and that was my volunteer role up until volunteer, last, yeah, yeah, last yeah. August. And then okay. I've uh, migrated over into the the employee side of Surf Life Saving now that we have these uh, EM roles up and running. Okay. EM being emergency management. But I think somewhere in that story, yeah, because I've seen a little bit of a bio from you, there's a story behind fire as well, isn't there? And, uh, and are you, yeah, and uh, are you also a member of the Rural Fire Service? Or I am. Were you? I yeah. I am a proud member of the Rural Fire Service, and uh, for uh, a bit under a year now, so I, I'm very much a newbie there. And uh, it actually was 
There are a number of drivers behind it. Um, the timing was driven by uh, when the emergency management roles came up at Surf Life Saving New South Wales, and I, I knew that I wanted to apply. I found if I was successful there, it was going to free up a good amount of my volunteer time. So uh, there was an opportunity there for me to, um, you know, expand and try something, uh, try something new. I think there's some real advantages in being involved in a different emergency service um, to the one you're working with because you get uh, some different perspectives as well on how others do things. So that's been uh, that's been really valuable. And, uh, you know, I just, as you go through kind of leadership roles in your, your volunteer experience, you... Uh, you get pegged, pegged and it's hard to just go and be that, you know, the worker bee, um, so to speak. And so uh, I love that at the at the RFS. And I said to them, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not looking to be on a committee or any roles like that. I want to come in. I want to do my thing, get dirty, clean up, um, you know, go home and just learn some learn some new skills but mm -hmm. I think that the the biggest driver um in many ways was the experiences of the the black summer bushfires down here in um Bermagui and on the far south coast and it was uh it was an intense time and it was uh it, one of those things that, uh, you know, I was very heavily involved from that uh, surf life-saving perspective and, and hosting, you know, um, a refuge here, helping people at the surf clubs and um, as they were seeking shelter. But one of the things that struck me was that kind of, you know, the fear of the unknown. You don't know. I didn't have a lot of knowledge around bushfires, how they um, how they worked, how as a firefighter, how do you approach them? And you know, I found myself about eighteen months ago thinking, you know, you would smell a fire, and it would bring the smell would bring back these memories, and yeah. it was not a positive memory. It yeah, was the yeah. the negative. It's that oh, the smell was here we go again, yeah. what's happening now, how do we manage this now? And for me personally, my, you know, approach, um, I would say for most of my life has been that um, knowledge gives you more control, I think, um, if not over the environment, about how you manage your your feelings, your emotions and so I thought if I'm going to manage this going forward I need to learn more about it and the best way to learn about it is to just get in and do yeah. it yeah. and I've actually that's been the most um, valuable thing for me other than you know building on some great friendships um, down there in the in the RFS but uh I can, you know, the, remember the time where I got in the truck after, you know, um, training and a couple of call-outs and I got in and, and that smell hit me and mm. I remember smiling, thinking, yes, good, I love okay. the smell now. Yeah. And that was a, you know, that was a really positive moment for me because it, um, 
I guess I'd turned a bit of a corner there in terms of my knowledge of and acceptance um, and my comfort level with that um, smell, which has obviously triggered negative memories um, for me in the past. And so now we've turned that into a into a positive. So uh, that's been a, a really kind of a neat journey for me. Okay. So I think... Um... The timing of those black summer fires, that's around 2020, wasn't it? 2019, 2020? That's uh, right. Down the, down the south coast. And, and I've seen on your bio somewhere, somewhere that you actually give a presentation on that. And it, uh, and it's obviously has some level of trauma in your history for you that you've learned to deal with. What What's the present, you know, you know are you able to give a summarise what that trauma was and what you talk about um, around that uh, around that time? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I've given a, a number of presentations actually to a variety of different organisations uh, over the the years since, and I think the you know the the constant things that come out of that was the. It, this got the jump on us. We certainly didn't expect. We we were activated here as a uh, um, to open the doors of the surf club. It was just after three in the morning, and uh, we obviously knew there were fires in the area, but uh, no one had expected it to come through as quickly as it did overnight. And mm. um, so we've opened up, and it's kind of it's all hands on deck, and no one knows what to expect. We don't have evacuation centre or fire response training that we do in surf yeah. lifesaving. Yeah. So it was um, very much having your, you know, head on a swivel, looking around, seeing yeah. what is it that needs to happen and how do we make that happen. And uh, just the sheer numbers. Um, at uh, one point here, we had uh, well over 5,000 people in and around oh the surf club. And it, it's a town of, you know, 1,600 people. But the time of year, there were so many visitors and the evacuate now messages had gone out. And so people were coming from, you know, obviously Quorma and Cabago were hit very hard by the fires and, and people were just flowing into town. So it was... Um, this is where we got the go back to that kind of uncontrolled chaos. It yeah. was uh, it was it was quite wild. It was an experience that I will never forget, and I imagine um, you know no one who was here will ever will ever forget that. And so, there so were how, time. So how did you manage five thousand people in a little surf club? <laughs> it well, it it was. Literally, like I said, it was in and around and they were up on the headlands and on the oval and, and cars were jam-packed in the streets. And uh, it was actually one of the things that I I personally struggled with afterwards was that it, it, the sheer numbers were just so overwhelming. And I remember where I was standing um, on the deck when I got a call from the emergency operations centre and said that the fire is about 20 minutes from you now. Whatever you guys are going to do with these people, you need to do it now. And I remember where I was uh, and, and I often stop there still and just, uh, you know, look out there and you looked around and the feeling 
you know, in the pit of my stomach was we can't help all of these people. Yeah. We just can't help them. And we don't have time. And you're quickly brainstorming with your team, thinking, what are our options here? And and none of them was a good option. Yeah. And in the months following, you know, before right, COVID hit, um, the number of people who would come up to us, you know, on patrol, and they would just come over and they would hug you and say, thank you so much for keeping us safe. Wow. And I felt like such a fraud. It's the only word for it because I, all I wanted to say to them was that we couldn't keep you safe. You know, at the end of the day, the wind changed and that kept you safe. And it's, um, that was one of the things that, you know, kind of, I think that I struggled with was that, wow, what if? What if yeah. that one didn't change? What what would we have done? And um, and I know that you deal with what you have, and the wind did change. So you know, um, we were very fortunate. But that was you know that I guess a bit of the emotional side where I did, and I've spoken to others, and you, you do feel like a bit of a, a fraud when people are, are thanking you for helping them, and and you're thinking I just there was nothing else we could have done. Yeah. Look, um, I can feel the emotion in your voice. You actually took me there as well. I'm, I'm with you. I can feel it. <laughs> um, and I wasn't there with you, but um, the only thing I would say is you obviously created a level of organisation that you did what you could do, um, and and that's all you can do in emergency emergency management is deal with what's in front of you. So you created a level of organisation that up to the point where the wind changed, there was a level of uh, not not chaos because you people felt that you were in control. So well done, absolutely. And I can just you you just like it's still there. I can see it's still there in you. Um, wow, uh, wow, Cheryl, that's uh, we we that's just a huge had story. It's like such an amazing team here, um, honestly. And it wasn't just lifesavers and not just local lifesavers we were fortunate to have the george bass marathon which is a seven-day surf boat race um it was on at the time and, and about 150 of those um uh, competitors were actually camping downstairs uh, at yeah. the bermagui surf club and yeah. uh when you know people started arriving and, and they started coming out of their their vans their immediate reaction is what can we do to help and things were evolving so quickly that you couldn't even direct everyone and here's what we need because we we didn't even know in some cases you know exactly what we needed and I think that's one of the beauty of surf lifesavers and the training we do that um, we're trained to evaluate what's happening whether it's in the water or on the land and look around for the tools that we have at our disposal and what tools do we have right now and you know in a rescue it might be a, a rescue boat or a jet ski or we might have a drone or we might be just down on another beach not on patrol and a young kid has a bodyboard down the way from us so you look around just see what tools you have and you just tackle the job at hand and this was an entirely new environment for us. And I was just so beyond proud of 
everyone there for how they just, they looked around, they saw a job that needed to be done. They didn't need to be asked. They, I still to this day don't know even half of the things that, that happened that day that people did that made a difference in our response because it all just developed so quickly. And we just had so many people step up to lead. Um, it was it was really inspiring. There are some pretty yeah. amazing people uh, out there. We're lucky. A lot of them are lifesavers. And, um, and a lot of people in the community stepped up as well. Mm. So it wasn't just lifesavers. And, and the evacuees themselves. And I, I think that, that was, it was one of the most valuable lessons I learned. And I've mentioned it in presentations that when when you're faced with um, such overwhelming numbers and something that's evolving so quickly, um, the people who've come to you for help, just because they need help, don't assume that they're helpless. Yeah. Um, they're not. Many of them were in a very traumatized state and and we did what we could to take um, to take care of them. But many of them, they needed a job. Yeah. They needed something to do. They couldn't just sit. They'd just watch their home burn. They couldn't now just sit here and do nothing and wait for what was coming next. They wanted a job. And not only did it help um, in terms of just the sheer numbers we were dealing with, but it kept them calm as well, um, gave them a sense of purpose when Clearly, they had been so out of control with what just came through their uh, their town. Now they could take a little bit of control back by helping. So I, I think we need to, um, you know, remember that as emergency responders going forward as well, that sometimes uh, we're very focused on providing the solution um, ourselves, but but sometimes some simple tasks for for those who have been impacted um, can really make a world of difference in the way that they respond as well and how they can. Um, yeah, I guess they just they assist. Many hands make light work, but it also assists in their emotional journey at that point as well to have a job. Well done. Well, what a story. And as far as um, like there's a recent example. I think at Maroubra Beach, where it was a similar similar story to what you said, there was a massive amount of highly trained lifesavers for whatever the competition was, and there was a mass um, rescue event needed, like over 20 people, and, and the same story as what you're saying. Um, uh, because they're on the spot, because they're used to assessing the situation, lives were saved where they normally would have been lost. So um, it says volumes about the level of training that you, your organisation does in, in surf life saving New South Wales. And I think we've just been treated to um, a really good account of, you know, uh, prior preparation. You talked about preparation all the time, um, uh, coming, delivering when, 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 um, when the challenges happen. Uh, so it's not, it's not luck. It's uh, you actually, you've prepared for it. You didn't know you were preparing for a fire when you're a lifesaver, but you uh, the same the same things apply. So look, I'm conscious of the time, um, but I'm I'm so glad that you went there 
with uh, someone like yourself with that story about the fire because I knew it was there. I didn't know what it was, but you took us there. We all felt it. Um, but you've you've ended up uh, being the recipient of the Lifesaver of the Year for New South Wales and Australia 2023-2024 um, or 2023. Yeah, 2000, it was based on the 22-23 season. Okay. Yeah. So do you want to um, share, I mean, you're, you're, you're a very modest person, but do you want to share um, what those awards were for? Like it's one thing to get the state award, but to, to get the national award is a huge big deal. So what... What's those awards for? I, I, I'm going to say to you just so honestly and sincerely that it is because of the amazing team that, um, you know, that I have to work with, that uh, to work, you know, around me and with me, um, they make me look good on a daily basis and uh, they inspire me to do better and be better. And I think that that's a beautiful part about a team. And so I actually, you know, in some ways I find, well, I'm extraordinarily humbled and honoured by the awards. I find it, it awkward in a sense too, because I know it isn't about one person. It never is. And no one can succeed in that level if they don't have an incredible team that they're part of. And so there's so many people who deserve that same recognition. And um, so I, I guess, as I said, it, it's it's very humbling, but I just want to, you know, people to know that that you will never and never excel and succeed by yourself. Um, it's always an incredible team. And, and wow, I have just been so fortunate to have so many amazing people around me. And they push me to be better. You know, they um, push me to improve my skills and improve my knowledge improve my networks you know whatever it's uh whatever it is and and the days where you don't feel like you have energy and you end up you go along and then they you know put a smile on your face and then you find some energy and so it's so many different components go into we're into those awards so i'm really grateful for for the team we have and and we might make it clear um you didn't nominate yourself you're no. yeah, yeah someone in surf life saving new south wales and someone in surf life saving australia nominated you um which says more about you than anything so um look uh you're so so indicative of leaders who possess your skills because you're so modest about it and i won't i won't drill you down and embarrass you anymore about it, but congratulations i would say uh to those state and national awards and 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 well done to you hats off to you that you you see the value of how important the team is um and you've talked about that the whole the whole way through your interviews so what I'm, where we might go now is where I like to go with these interviews is um is your story so inspiring uh, and uh, 
and I, I'm so glad that you've been nominated for the um, coffee table book for She Inspires Me. You know, New South Wales most emer most um, inspiring women in emergency services for 2000. With the listeners, and then and this podcast does goes all, go all over the world. Um, if someone wanted to to emulate your journey, what um, and what you get out of your career, I think that's more your lesson is what you what what it gives you personally and around you. Um, what would you, do you be your tips? You know, say if you had three main lessons or focuses for someone wanting to embark on Cheryl's journey. Oh, um, I think that, you know, communication uh, has to be key and that we get everybody's busy, we're all busy, and sometimes we get very tied up in our own bubble. And so to just really make a point of trying to, to pull back and make sure that you listen, you ask questions of those around you so that you, you understand others' motivators or drivers and, um, and really listen to them because I think you're going to save yourself a whole lot of pain and heartache along the way um if you can um become really effective at that listening and you know I don't say that as someone who had that skill when I was 20 or even 30 and I still work on that you know daily yeah. and I don't always get it right but I think it's really um that one's a really important one um I think another would be the being a leader isn't always easy, you know. It's, uh, it can be hard and, and you have to make tough decisions that people aren't going to like. And um, sometimes it's it's easier, you know, to say than to live it, but I call it the, the head on the pillow test. And when you put your head on your pillow at night, if you can reflect, and even if it was a hard day and you are not the most popular person around and you've upset a number of people with whatever decision you've made, if you can put your head on the pillow and you can look back and say, I did the right things for the right reasons today, then you can sleep easier. But sometimes the easiest decisions or the quickest decisions aren't the right ones for the right reasons. So they, you know, might achieve an immediate purpose and it might not upset as many people, but it will tie things in knots down the road. So yeah. even the tough ones, just know that you've made them for the right reasons. I love it. I love it. And have you got, uh, I mean, that's, you're, you're, you're hitting 2-0 two, two for winning um recommendations communication and and reflection uh, head on the pillow reflection um is there a third one third jim yeah uh for me it's integrity integrity is everything and once you you know once you give that up you can't it's so hard to get that back and I think that um, 
you know, it, it so many things play into integrity. It's about um, being honest. It's about being fair. It's about being, um, you know, open to others and providing equal chances and um, being inclusive in, in a number of different ways and not just saying it but living it. And um, I think integrity is one thing that you – it's really hard to get back if you were to lose it. And it's so important to honour that trust that people place in you. So, um, again, I guess it ties back to do the right things for the right reasons and you will keep that, um, keep that integrity intact. Well, I'll leave it with that, Cheryl. Um... I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today, uh, and and it was kind. Of, if if you could summarise the interview, you know your your leadership skills were em evident right from the word go, uh, and 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 how you listen to people and respect them and and build relationships and the reflections that you have have on on how you could do better each time. And valuing the different skills of the of the team, I'm just summarising it as as I think about it. Um, so there was, yeah, all of that was valuable, and and I was uh, the the interview would have um, kind of hung on its own just with that. But then you took us to the fires, and and what that meant to you, and and, and I was nearly tearing up myself when you were. Um, when you were telling, I can still feel it when you were telling that story because you know, as a as an emergency management leader, we can all we all know that 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 feeling. Um, and you told that story beautifully. So thank you for thank you for for what you did for those people in Bermagui on on that day. You know when the when the when the Black Summer fires came through. It through uh, how scary when you when you think about it. Because fires normally don't. When we think about fires, they don't happen at 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, so that's what's frightening about it. Uh, and then I love your humility about, well, yes, I've won these awards, but I didn't, I wouldn't have got them without the team. <laughs> so it's just uh, the humility of you is just astounding. So um, thank you, Cheryl. I've, I've loved talking to you today, uh, and I'm sure our listeners will love your story. So thank you for being so willing to come on the show. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for having me, and uh, and it's been a real treat to uh, to chat with you. It really has. Thank you. Thank you. Our interview with Cheryl McCarthy was not just a conversation; it was a masterclass in leadership. Her experiences during the fire. Her humility in acknowledging her team's contributions and her unwavering commitment to community service are lessons for us all. I'm deeply appreciative of Cheryl's willingness to share her story and am inspired by her leadership in the emergency management. Thank you, Cheryl, for your service and for reminding us of the impact one person can have when they lead with courage, compassion and collaboration. Now then, if you like today's podcast, please leave a short review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to get your podcast from. These reviews are influential and I'd suggest that you share it with anyone you know who might 
be curious about being a better leader. Today's show was produced by Alan Sicard. It was edited by Alan Sicard and mixed by Alan Sicard. The theme music is by a musician called Savic and it is titled Legacy. I'm Alan Sicard. Thanks for listening. <laughs>